This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast, number 255, Mozart. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, rating, and subscribing. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart is one of those great ones, like Ludwig von Beethoven, where the last name is all you need to identify him, like Einstein or Shakespeare or Washington. This week we'll discuss childhood genius and the good and bad things that come with it, Mozart's less-than-ideal marriage and its lessons for us, the precise number of notes that a piece of music should include, if there is one, spoiler alert, there isn't, and a way you can build on the work of Mozart today on your game table. We'll start with what I've been preaching. They say the only true prodigies are in music and mathematics. And basically, music is math. It's all wavelengths and timing. Look at a piece of music, any music. The first thing you see on the staff is a clef of some sort, the squiggly line that looks like the backward ampersand or the fishhook with two dots, or maybe one or two others if you play a really weird instrument. And the next thing you see is a fraction, the note that counts for a single beat and the number of those beats that appear in the measure of the music. Anyway, I don't know if Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was particularly gifted or even interested in math. I do know he was composing entire scores of music at an age where most of us are ahead of the game if we can even read. And I don't mean read music, I mean read words. There's no doubt that Mozart's environment as a child played a huge part in that. His father was a noteworthy composer in his own right. His sister was a virtuoso. But Wolfgang was different. He was special. And anyone who ran across him knew it immediately. It's entertaining and a bit intimidating to see a child exceed the efforts of so-called experts twice or three times his age. In the end, though, the novelty wears off. Mozart the child was like a performing dog or monkey. Most of the entertainment value was in the novelty. No one listens to the compositions of a preteen because they want to be inspired. A child has nothing of value to offer an adult beyond the diversion of the moment. At least that's what the adults tell themselves. As someone who memorized the genealogy of Jesus by the age of eight, who spent his entire childhood as the one kid in Bible class who would bail the class out of trouble when it was obvious no one else had done their lesson, I can say a great deal of praise is heaped upon such ones. And I'm grateful, grateful to mom and dad for encouraging my schooling, and grateful to everyone else for noticing and commenting. But I have a few comments of a more critical nature to share on the topic of overachieving children. First, for the overachievers and their parents. The things exceptional children excel at are things that rarely make a big difference in their walk of faith or anyone else's. Despite what I likely thought in the moment, no one draws nearer to God by memorizing lists of names or even verses of scripture. Bible drills are clearly a sign of quality time being spent in biblical pursuits, and that's certainly a good thing. And if it builds habits in the children to the point that they develop good study, prayer, and worship habits that will characterize them for a lifetime, that's an excellent thing. But if it's just showing off... It can be more of a hindrance than a help. When Paul told Timothy to be an example of the believers in 1 Timothy 4.12, he doesn't mention public displays of arcane knowledge. He mentions speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. If you're a precocious 12-year-old or the parent of one, emphasize those things more than the ability to fill in blanks in your class book. Second for the gawkers, appreciating Excellence in others is no substitute for pursuing excellence yourself. It's all fine and good to appreciate and compliment the three-year-old who can say the books of the Bible. 
And if that motivates slash shames you into learning the books of the Bible yourself, that's wonderful. But simply shaking your head and saying, boy, I wish I were that smart is quite frankly shameful. Okay, maybe you didn't get the encouragement and training this crazy smart child is getting, and that's a shame. But you've long since passed the point of choosing your own course in life. If you want knowledge, go out and get knowledge. It's not hiding from you. God's given you everything you need to be completely adequate, according to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. If you were below par as a child and you want to blame mommy and daddy for that, fine. But if you're old enough to find this podcast, I'll wager you're old enough to take responsibility for your own underachievement. God bless smart children. My prayer is they grow into smart, motivated, skillful Christians. My prayer for you, whatever your age or experience level, is that you strive for excellence. Starting late is better than quitting. This is what I've been reading. On August 4th, 1782, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart married Maria Constanza Weber. The ceremony was conducted in the Cathedral of St. Stephen in Vienna, Austria, with only a small handful of souls present, none of which were related to Mozart. His father Leopold, a stern and dictatorial man who had largely directed Mozart's musical career, had vocally and repeatedly opposed the marriage. Constanza was thought, at least by Herr Mozart, to be beneath his son's standing. The Mozarts were by no means what we would call upper class. But at least the young Mozart had the tools and connections to find great success in the not-too-distant future, potentially. Constanza was the daughter of Wolfgang's former landlady, with no standing at all in Viennese society. The seeds were sown early, then, for a challenging marriage. And according to Francis Carr, in his book Mozart and Constanza, challenging might be considered a kind word for it. Wolfgang was already a sensation when he met his future bride. Sensation, by the way, is not a synonym for rich person. Like most young professionals, Wolfgang struggled to make ends meet. Leopold was convinced that marriage of any kind would be a setback to Wolfgang's career. He needed to focus on writing, teaching, performing, making some money, and acquiring a patronage that would make an unsteady career like musician actually pay off. But young Wolfgang... How do I put this delicately? Wolfgang really, really wanted to get married. He set his devotion on multiple women, including at least one of Constanza's sisters, before settling on and successfully courting Constanza. Young people seeking marriage have plenty of struggles under the best of circumstances. But these were not the best of circumstances. Wolfgang was consumed with work, somewhat immature, separated from and somewhat resentful of his father's guiding influence. Constanza, although the niece of famed composer Karl Maria von Weber, was at best a middling musical talent. She certainly was not inclined by preference or by training to give her husband the support he needed and expected. The short eight years of their marriage were fraught with time spent apart, often in the company of people of the opposite sex. Wolfgang wrote repeatedly to Constanza, urging her to cease from embarrassing him and herself in the company of other men although he almost certainly found himself in similar circumstances. Eventually, Wolfgang died of an unidentified illness at the age of 35. He was buried in a pauper's grave in Vienna. Constanza did not attend the funeral. In subsequent years, she arranged to profit considerably from the sale of her husband's music. She married again, helped write a biography of Wolfgang, and eventually died at the age of 78. 
At the time of the wedding, Wolfgang was 26. Constanza was 20. Hal and Tracy Hammonds, by the way, were 27 and 21. And what I call, if I may say, the tremendous success we have made of our marriage had nothing to do with a few months on the calendar. The key, I believe, has been the knowledge from the beginning that we shared and continue to share a common vision of life and of marriage. We are Christians on our way to heaven, and we are committed to help one another along the way. Every decision in the last 32 years has been made with that in mind. Financial decisions, child-rearing decisions, work-life balance decisions, all of it. That doesn't guarantee success, of course. Great plans are always subject to human implementation, and we haven't always been perfect. But we've always wanted to be. We've seen how Jesus treats his bride, Ephesians 5.25, and we want that for ourselves. And I like to think that we've gotten our fair share of it. In regard to marriage, whether in prospect or in reality, please take your lead from me and Tracy and from Jesus instead of from Mr. and Mrs. Mozart. Seek commonality, no unequal yoking, to borrow from 2 Corinthians 6.14. Work together toward a common goal. Be in the same room and find ways to delight in that. It's no guarantee of success, but it's a lot better bet than just throwing marriage vows against the wall to see if they'll stick. This is what I've been hearing. Like many people my age, one of my first intense exposures to the Mozart story was by way of Amadeus, the Academy Award-winning film from 1984, starring Tom Hulse in the title role and F. Murray Abraham as Antonio Salieri. Mozart's jealous rival. Actually, not to puff out my chest at all, but I saw the off-Broadway production that inspired the film even earlier. High school me figured my interest in high art would make me more appealing to a young lady I had my eye on. It didn't work. But that's not why you're here today. Anyway, one of the enduring lines in the film and in the play is when the King of Austria expresses a bit of frustration at the first opera composed for him by the young Mozart. It's not that he didn't enjoy the opera, he did. But he thought, as did the so-called experts in his court, it just had too many notes. Too much going on. Too complicated. Difficult for the sake of being difficult. I can relate, although I try not to be judgmental or snooty about it. Mozart's genius is obvious. And I have a choice. Well, three choices, I guess. I can try to rise to his level. I can try to dumb him down to my level. Or I can resign myself to a lifetime of Hank Williams, Chuck Berry, and whatever other three-chord musical artists might be out there vying for the attention of musical illiterates. And let me handle the third one first, because I love Hank Williams, and I love Chuck Berry. Sometimes three chords done right is all you need. And if I'm going to pick up a guitar and play along, it had better be Hank Williams, Chuck Berry, or one of their technical peers. G chord, C chord, D seventh chord, and back to G. That's about the extent of my guitar repertoire. And that's your cheating heart right there. Alternatively, I can dumb the music down. Well, that's a loaded phrase. Let's call it simplification instead. If Twinkle Twinkle Little Star was in fact written by Mozart as the completely unsubstantiated and yet enduring legend goes, that's about as simple a tune as ever was written. I think we can assume Mozart's original version was somewhat more elaborate than the -the jack-in-the-box level tune we've all learned to play on the recorder back in fourth grade. The challenging option, of course, is to learn enough about music to meet Mozart at his level, or at least make a decent attempt at it. That's a lot more work, a lot tougher on the ego. But as with any educational experience, there's true joy and satisfaction in the effort, and certainly there is in whatever success we may find. 
Is he actually talking about Bible study here? Of course, he's talking about Bible study here. The same exact principle applies when we encounter genius-level biblical truth in, say, Romans or Isaiah. You can just throw up your hands and quit and say, I'm more of a Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John kind of guy and write the tougher passages off entirely. Although, fair warning, there's plenty of tough stuff to chew on in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, too. Just saying. But I can confidently say, not knowing exactly where you are on the bell curve of biblical astuteness, you are capable of better than that. With help from those who are more experienced, you can simplify the tougher concepts and still come away with a rewarding experience. And you can train yourself in the biblical arts and one day understand Romans or Isaiah in a deeper, more profound way than you currently think possible. And imagine the feeling. You're starting to really understand the Bible. God's talking to you, and you're able to understand him. God didn't give you too many notes. He gave you precisely the right number of notes, put precisely in the right place. Don't diminish his work just because you're too stubborn or lazy. Listening is work, no doubt. But in this case, it's absolutely worth the effort. This is what I've been playing. I deliberately picked a chipper piece of music for the lead-in to the What I've Been Playing segment. Box Brandenburg Concerto Number 3. This, you'll notice, is not that piece. It's all Mozart this week, if you haven't picked up on that already. This one is the Lacrimosa from his Requiem Mass, the last piece of music Mozart ever wrote. Or perhaps I should clarify, the last piece of music Mozart ever worked on. He never completed the Requiem. What he did complete, however, is wonderful. Even if you've never watched Amadeus, you likely recognize it. It serves as the backdrop for Lacrimosa the board game, which has become a favorite in the Hammond's house, at least with me and Tracy. A combination of funerals, German classical music, and a 90-minute board game hasn't grabbed Kylie's interest yet. We still dare to dream. At any rate, players in Lacrimosa are patrons trying to get the piece completed after Mozart's death. You go back in time, essentially, to offer Mozart your support in the form of selling or exhibiting his work during his lifetime, traveling with him, gathering resources. The background you're building with Herr Mozart is useful in the present as you go around Vienna trying to recruit qualified composers to complete the Requiem. Essentially, you're paying tribute to a great man and his magnificent work, while at the same time making an unapologetic effort to profit financially from your relationship with him. At funerals, we hear a lot of talk about his work was done, like God gives us each a thousand tasks to accomplish and then calls us home after we wrap up the last one. I don't think life's like that at all. The tasks I see set before me are tasks that, by their definition, will never be completed. Take child rearing, for instance. I used to think my job as a father would be done when my girls turned 18, moved out of the house, got married, or some combination of those things. Now I'm realizing that's not true at all. I constantly find myself thinking of Joshua 24:15 and the great patriarch continuing to exercise control and authority over his family, even in his old age. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If things go according to the normal way of the world, I'll leave them behind one day. But they won't be done any more than I'm done right now. Other people will have to step in in my absence and assume the role of guide. Perhaps Tracy, perhaps a husband or in-laws. One would think, though, and certainly hope, that by the time they are in their 50s or 60s, 
they'll be able to assume most of the responsibility themselves. In fact, they mostly have already. I've been teaching them to do it now for more than 20 years. The only way we'll leave this life with all our ends neatly tied off is if we quit working too early. If you retire from life and from the Lord at 72, say, and figure you just to coast your way into the finish line with a cookie in one hand and the remote control in the other, then sure, you might not have unfinished business. But is that how you want to go out? I, for one, find no biblical authority for quitting active service just because you crossed a certain threshold. I see plenty of admonitions, such as Revelation 2.10, be faithful until death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I see plenty of examples, such as Paul, who pushed through all forms of adversity until he had finally finished the course, or at least saw the end in the immediate and unavoidable future. Now, the question is not whether we'll finish our own requiem. We won't. The question is whether we'll be empowering others to finish it for us. Because if my life is devoted to serving my Lord Jesus Christ, it should not be enough to simply praise Him while I'm alive. I want my life to continue to be a tribute to Him long after I'm gone, in the lives I touched, in the memories I leave behind, in the hearts of my brethren. Hebrews 11.4 says of Abel, even though he is dead, he still speaks through his faith. As long as my name lives in people's memories, my faith should be the first thing they remember. I have no illusions about being remembered as long or as fondly as Abel or hundreds of others I could name, but I'll be remembered some. So if you're one of the ones I precede in death, to borrow from Nehemiah 5.19, remember me favorably for all I've done for these people. That's a song I want to be sung over my grave long after I'm gone. Make it a point to have it sung over yours as well. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also check out the How Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.